what Paul was saying about how he desired to live um, in order to serve Christ, yet he counted it as gain for when death came, he would be promoted to glory. He would be in heaven with his Lord and he saw that as, as a greater thing. And now he's moving on to, to write to the church to how they are to honour God, honour the Lord while they are not on earth. And as I mentioned earlier, the the aspect that we're going to look at this evening is unity of believers. True unity is hard to come by today. For where, wherever we look, there is disunity. Um, we can um, I, I, I expand it out as far as we can go and see nation against nation. Um, nations with different views at war. We can narrow it down again and look at countries by themselves. Nations are divided in themselves. Uh, we can look at our own island and see the political scene. MHKs or MPs across are, uh, are in disunity because they're all desperate to climb the ladder. And they're willing to knife one another in the back in order to, to go further on in their careers. We can look in our, our own workplace. Um, I'm sure we all have disunity of things going on in our own workplace. Uh, we can even look to entertainment. Um, we see uh, the world of sport full of disunity too. Um, athletes desperately looking out for themselves. Clubs or governing bodies looking out for themselves. Contracts being broken. Um, better deals being sought elsewhere. And I, w- I would argue quite strongly that there is disunity everywhere because it is impossible to find unity where self is king, where pride and our own desires, if they are king and at the, at the front of all, all things, then there is bound to be disunity. If everybody's out from themselves, then unity is impossible. If everybody wants what's best for themselves, then others must suffer. So what about the church? Surely the church must be unified. Surely the church must have unity. Well, unfortunately, um, a church is full of sinners. And as sinners, we are selfish. And this selfishness can cause disunity. However, there is a difference. Unlike the world, we have the cure. Our cure is not what the world offers. The world offers courses to help with unity. Um, There's therapy, there's team building, there's counselling, there's things such as simple as going out and drinking together or having a meal together or looking at some form of entertainment to try and bring unity. There's team building courses. Um... That's okay for the time that's going on. But after that, again, self will rule. Our cure is a cure. It's greater than all of the things mentioned. So this evening, we will look at unity in the church. And we'll start by looking at, uh, first and foremost, conduct that is worthy of the gospel. Then we'll look at, actually, conflict and suffering is a promise of God. We'll see that when we... we as a church, we remain united when we are actually humble. And finally, our focus will be shifted 
to Jesus. So let's begin with looking at conduct that is worthy of the gospel. We go to verse 27 in chapter 1. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may, may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So remember, all this is feeding into the unity of believers. And uh, Paul writes here that he wants the saints at Philippi to conduct themselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. Let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Now the word conversation in verse 27 is better translated as conduct. So I'm going to try and not butcher it here, but the Greek word um, for conduct for conversation is polytuomai. And that is to behave in a manner worthy of the gospel, to have conduct worthy. But the word can also be translated as behaving in a manner of a citizen. So Paul is saying that he expects the church here to behave in a way that shows that they are in fact citizens of the gospel. Let their conduct be worthy of this citizenship. And Paul uses a similar word later on in chapter 3, verse 20. Poly, poly to ma. And Paul states um, that for our conversation is in heaven, but what he's saying there is our citizenship is in heaven. It's better translated for for us that it's a citizenship. For whence also we look for the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying, look to the church here, you are saints. You are no longer in this world. You are not citizens here. You don't belong in this world. So do not behave in this way, do not behave, behave in, a, in the way of the world. Don't think like the world. Do not look to the world for help in spiritual matters. You belong to Jesus. He is your king. You are citizens of heaven. Therefore, behave in a manner worthy of that citizenship, of that calling. But whether we like it or not, we have to admit that we are still influenced by this world. And this is something as believers, we must fight against. And if we are not careful, we can act and think as if we are citizens of this world. It's very, very easy to do. And one way of acting, as as we are are of this world, citizens of this world, is when there is disunity in the church. Now, Paul, I think, is thinking of of this very thing when he speaks about keeping unity, because he speaks of keeping unity In the next few verses, this is what he's getting at here in verse 27. Paul wants to know that the church is unified, whether he's with them physically or if he's absent. He wants to hear that they are still united together. And then he outlines some ways in which they are to seek unity. Uh, He says, look, you are to stand fast in one spirit with one mind, strive together for the faith of the gospel. So this is... What he's saying here, this is the conduct that is worthy of the gospel. But what does he mean when he says by standing fast in one spirit? Paul, he's speaking of a togetherness here, a common bond. For all believers around the world, we have this common bond. And this common bond is that we've been saved, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, because that is not possible, but we are saved 
according to the mercy of Christ. We've been washed, we've been regenerated, and we've been renewed by the Holy Spirit. And we've been saved by the work of Jesus Christ, our Saviour. That we are justified by what Christ has done, and it is all a works of grace. And we are now heirs, and we have this certain hope of eternal life. Our citizenship isn't here, it's in heaven. And this is our common bond. And I'm sure when you've maybe travelled abroad or gone to other places and you've met a fellow believer, there is that common bond. We, we, we feel it. We feel it within our spirit because we have this common bond in Christ. We share the same spirit. And it is this gospel, it is the gospel that holds the believer firm. We are to be, we are to be steadfast, aren't we? Paul here says, stand fast. And we can stand fast because the gospel does not depend on us. It does not depend on man. It depends on Jesus. If we had to stand firm on the law, that would be of no good for us because the law cannot save. The law only demands from us. And the demands that it makes, we cannot keep. It's the gospel. The gospel declares what Christ has done. It's because the gospel is all, is all of what Christ has done. We have that firm foundation that we can be steadfast on. And Paul also states that we are to be of one mind as well, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And these commands that that Paul has given us to be of one mind, to be steadfast, is the same command that it is for us today. It's for us today. We are to be of one mind and that is to be in agreement. And we have an agreement, don't we? Here we we um, believe the scriptures and we confess that, don't we? We have the 1689 that we, we state we believe is a, a summary of the scriptures. So we have this agreement. And we agree with certain things that the scriptures teach. You see, if there was no agreement here, there would be disunity. Because an army cannot fight, cannot defend the faith, defend whatever they are defending if... They all have different views of what's going on. There is no way that they can work together. So we have to have one mind. Now, unfortunately, um, the world, as we've seen, is in chaos. So there cannot be unity in the world because everybody is selfish. Everybody has their own desires. So something needs to happen. Our minds have to be renewed. And we see this in Romans 12 too. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may approve what is what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So our minds have to be renewed, and this happens um, when we come to faith. The Holy Spirit has renewed our minds. We have one mind then. And we we cannot be united in the battle for the faith and against the evil of this world and false teachings that come to attack the church unless our minds have been renewed and we look to the scriptures and we believe what they teach. And it's the Holy Spirit that renews our minds and helps us to understand what God is telling us through his word. Again, this is nothing of our doing. So when an attack comes against the church, whether it's a a physical one or spiritual, we come together with one mind. We search the scriptures. Our minds are formed by Jesus and his word. And we come together in prayer 
to God. All this is, is drawing the church in unity. And when if false doctrine does come in, then it is attacked. And we pray and we seek the truth in the scriptures. Again, this is all one mind. We are digging into the word of God. Um, and it, it is a real blessing. Um, I remember, it's, I think it's about 10 years ago when I preached my very first sermon. I can't even remember um, what book I was in or what, what verses I was preaching on. Um, but I remember um, at one point stating that Christ is the only way, that Muslims and, and Jews and every other faith, Hindus, he, is, is a false. Christ, the gospel, the scriptures uh, all point to Jesus. Jesus is the only way of salvation. And from what I remember, looking back now, is the sermon was awful. It was an awful sermon, but I, I believe I got that aspect right. And I remember a gentleman coming round, face bright red, clearly in rage. And he could have picked on a million different things to pull apart my sermon, and he'd been right. But his issue, his issue was that I stated that Christ is the only way. So immediately there was disunity. Immediately in that church, he was a member of the church, a member of the church claiming that Jesus Christ is not the only way. So straight away, that is where there is a disunity and it should be the same. There should be disunity where false teaching comes in. We cannot go alongside um, a teaching that claims that Christ is not the only way. But where we have unity, it should be in the truth of scripture. And again, we confess this, don't we? We confess that the scripture is the only sufficient, certain and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith and obedience. We agree to this. So with one mind formed by scripture, we use this sword to fight. This is uh, our weapon of choice. This is how we stand firm in the faith. And we must be ready to keep the unity, to fight against false teaching because it will come. And then Paul leads us on now to look at conflict and suffering and how actually conflict and suffering is a promise of God. We're just going to read verses now 28 to 30. And in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his Sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. There we have it. Conflict and suffering is a promise of God. There is going to be trouble. There is going to be strife in this world. And I think if we ever go about our, our lives without ever upsetting or offending anybody, then we probably not doing things right. I'm not talking about going out and looking for an argument or a fight, but where we speak about Jesus, where we speak about the word of God, it's going to cause offence. There will be um, conflict. And again, the promise is there. John 16, 33. Christ says, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So in the world, we fully expect tribulation we expect conflict and suffering because we we're giving a different message remember the world is for self the gospel is about jesus so there's going to be conflict there 
So we've been called out of the world for Christ and we've been placed in it to do his work and to bring the message. And the message that we bring is that all have fallen short of the glory of God and that people must repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. This is what we read in scripture. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. It's what the scriptures teach. But it's offensive and it will bring conflict. It will bring suffering. So when we come with that message, we know that the preaching of the cross to them that perish is foolishness. But for us who are saved, it's the power of God. So the heart of heart have created their own gods and they will hate hate you for the message of the cross. But ultimately they're hating Jesus, they're rejecting his message. But unfortunately this doesn't just go for those who reject Christ, but it also goes for those who, who may even claim to preach the gospel. I mean, you would be surprised at how many, how many ways people add works to salvation, especially in, in particular justification. So do not surprise if, if you bring a message that is all about Christ, that is all about Christ, how he justifies us. Do not be surprised if you're attacked by those who proclaim to be Christians because they want that little bit of themselves in the gospel. They want to see themselves, say, basically saving themselves. They don't want Christ to take all the glory. So when we suffer for the sake of the faith, we have comfort, don't we? We've read it there. Firstly, because those who persecute true believers, it reveals that they actually, they're under the judgment. They are not in the right. They're on the side of Satan. It's clear which side they play for. But it also shows which side you are on. To suffer for the faith is the outworking of one's faith. It's, it's showing that you are willing to stand up for Christ and you belong to him. To a certain extent, persecution for the faith is a badge of honour. Now, I'm not talking again, I'm not going on about just going around looking to offend people and cause hassle. I'm talking about when you go day to day doing the work of Christ that you've been called to do, that he has strengthened you to do, that he has equipped you to do, because you have been called by him. If persecution comes, then we face it straight on. Our job is to glorify God. And if that leads to trouble, then so be it. And Paul offers again a great comfort. It brings in unity here. Verse 29 and 30. We suffer because we love Jesus. Because we belong to Jesus. We will suffer for his sake. So we, we are united to Christ. And because we were united, we will share in sufferings. And that's a lovely thing because it shows we are united to him. We can rejoice because that we are also united to Jesus and to Paul. There's a fellowship there with other believers. Jesus suffered, Paul suffered for his faith in Christ, and we suffer for that same faith. We are not alone in this. Throughout history, those of the way have suffered. And this life, if it is to be lived for Jesus, we will see pain, we will see suffering, we will see persecution. But at death, we gain. 
But we get to be with our Saviour. We're all together in this. Even if some are suffering more than others, if some are out there more than others and are being persecuted greatly, we're still in it together because we are praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ. However, this unity is fragile. Fragile not because of Christ, because true unity he will keep and it will stay. The unity is fragile when we bring ourselves into the equation. So whilst we may all suffer for the same faith which brings unity, we have been called to protect this unity. And Paul now gives us commands to follow and to keep in order to have this unity. Let's look now to chapter 2 and we'll read verses 1 to 4. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfil ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. So Paul shows us here that to remain united, we must be humble. And Paul appeals to the church now at Philippi to remain united in times of conflict. Paul starts his appeal with reminding the church where they stand. He firstly appeals by reminding them of the consolation they have in Jesus. That is conflict. In this conflict, they have comfort. They have solace because they are refreshed and built up by knowing that they are in Jesus Christ. There is a comfort there. Paul reminds them of who they belong to. They belong to Jesus. A love that is clear to see is, and, and to know that we are loved, is just by looking to Jesus. He gave his life on the cross for us. The righteous for the unrighteous. There we see love clearly seen. And then Paul goes on to remind them that they have the comforter himself, the Holy Spirit, the the Spirit who helps us in our infirmities. For when we, we don't know what we should pray, he helps us to pray. He makes intercession for us. We see this in Romans 8, 26. So we have a, a clear love that comforts us in these times. We have Jesus Christ who has died for our sins. We have the Holy Spirit who is our helper. And we, we, we see the Holy Spirit in action, don't we? And we see um, Peter in Acts 2.38 when he preaches, when he says uh, to the crowd, Repent and be baptised every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So again, we've been reminded of unity, unity in the Spirit, for we have received the Holy Spirit. There we see God's mercy and grace and love to us. So Paul is reminding the church of this truth for the purpose of bringing unity to mind. He then states that if there is any affection, if there's any mercy, then his joy needs to be fulfilled by, he wants them to live in a manner that is worthy of of the truths that he's speaking about. 
And he gives them a list of what you must and mustn't do. He says, be like-minded, be of the same love, of one accord, be of one mind. Do nothing out of self-glorification. Do nothing out of uh, a purpose to, to gain for yourself. But be selfless. Think of others first. And as I mentioned earlier in the service, Cain, Saul, Judas, Diotrephes, all had one thing, one thing in mind. And it was self. It was pride. It was self-promotion. It was self-worth. And their actions that followed came from this self-centred heart, born of a sinful nature. Now, the Christian still has to battle this sinful nature. We still have to fight against this pride and this selfishness that is still within us. So we ask ourselves, we ask ourselves now, when we get angry at one another, where does that come from? When there is bitterness between us, when we act against our brothers or sisters in Christ, what is at the heart of the issue? Well, we look to James 4.1. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lust that war in your members? Selfish desires, pride and wanting for ourselves. That's when disunity comes. And for all of us, that pride is not far away. And if for a minute, if we think we have a handle on this, then pride has already got its root there. And as I mentioned before, there's no man-made cure against this pride and selfish desire. There's no man-made way of being able to, to be selfless, to put one another first, to do the things that, that Paul is asking. But it is pride, it is arrogance that stops unity. It divides families. It destroys churches. It gives ammunition to those set against Jesus and his church. Because in pride it will break a fellowship. It will cause the disunity that Paul is desperately trying to fight against. And it hurts the bride of Christ. But Paul shows how we can remain united when we are humble. How we can bring unity in the church. And he shows us this in verses 5 to 11. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took up on him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So we remain united. We remain united when we are humble. But this humility cannot be found in, in ourselves. We cannot look to ourselves and produce humility. We must look to Jesus. A church that is humble and unified is a church that constantly has its eyes on Jesus. We look to him. We look to our saviour. For us to be unified, we must be, as the scriptures teach, be of one mind. And that is the mind of Christ. Paul says it there, doesn't he? He speaks of, let this mind be in you 
which was also in Christ Jesus. And what was this mind? It was one of humility. Jesus, God himself, creator of all, who only had to speak and all that was made was made, shows us his humility. He came to earth. He took on human flesh. And he did this in order to serve. To serve. To serve who? Those who were worthy? No, those who were unrighteous. The sinner. The ones who hate him. He came to serve. And he came to serve. He came to this earth with no wild celebration, no parade. He was born a man. In his humility, Jesus obeyed the law and he was obedient to the Father. An obedience that you and I have failed in. For we have broken every single command that the Lord has given us, whether by action or by thought or by speech. But Christ was perfectly obedient. And so obedient that it led him ultimately to the cross. An obedience that led him to suffer as if he was a guilty sinner. Jesus came humbly to die for the sins of those who call on his name for salvation. And that is the humility which keeps unity in the church. Because this unity is not of man, it's of God. So when we see the commands of what we should do and what we don't do, not for one minute should we, we start to think, right, how do I do that? Because that's pride. That's pride come in. We look straight to Christ. We look to him. We look to Jesus who is perfectly humble. And now we see him highly exalted to where he rightly belongs. And that is name we are a unified church because by the blood of Christ we have been washed. We have been cleansed. So we cannot fail to be humble when we cast our eyes on him. For when we are justified by his blood we are so aware of our sin And the cost of that sin. That we cannot fail to be humble. If for a minute we look and think, oh, I deserve to be saved. That's the gospel gone. When we look and see how undeservedly we have this gift. We have been given the gift of faith. How Jesus has done all this when we were in an undeserving state. We cannot fail to be humble. So when... People complain and say that the gospel is not required for the church or that it shouldn't, it doesn't have to be preached on at every service. Then the church will fail to be humble. For its eyes will no longer be on Christ. The church will forget all that he's done and the gates will be opened for pride to run free. Brothers, sisters, you have been saved because of Jesus' humility. You are kept in the faith because Jesus was perfectly obedient. Again, a reminder, obedient to the point of death. So if we are to be humble, if we are to be unified, we cannot make the mistakes that Cain, Saul, Judas and Eutrophes made. We must look to Jesus at the cross, where we see our sin. There we are humbled. There we see our saviour and we see the cost of our sin. And I'll finish with this. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified 
in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Amen. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counsellor, or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen.